Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Greetings, sports fans. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we're starting off that way because we're asking you to give us your feedback on what you think the hardest thing to do in sports is. Um, Here I am, Paul Juris, asking that question and... My friend Gigi Gregory Gordon is yeah. joining us. Hello, everybody. Um, what's happening? Yep, we're making our way through our skill themed season, and uh, we've already touched on what skill is, and then um, training for it, and now we're going to look at what are some of the methods that the the canon of motor learning literature has to uh, inform us about practicing for skill acquisition. Absolutely. And the name of this episode is The Whole Truth. There we go. And we are sort of playing on a theme. And what we're getting into today is something that we refer to as whole verse part learning. What does that mean? Uh, We'll get into some of the research as we typically like to do. And by the way, this goes back uh, quite a long way to the turn of the century. So this is not a new subject. Now, the things that researchers have looked at have changed over time, but it's been in the motor learning research or learning research, education research for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll talk about some things that are amenable to whole verse part learning, and uh, we'll get into some practical methodology. So why don't we begin? Let's do it. Okay. So we're talking about whole verse part learning, Gigi. Right. So what? (laughs) Who cares? Why is this important for our listeners to understand this idea? All right. Well, so whole verse part, um, first of all, let's define it a little bit. So whole uh, practice is, let's say I've got a specific skill. So let's say it's even something like flicking a light switch. So theoretically... Pretty discreet skill, but okay. Yeah. And by discreet, we, we don't mean that it's hidden and covert. Discrete in the motor learning literature means that it's you do it and then it's done. So imagine like you're in a car and you're shifting a gear, like you shift to one gear and then it's done, then you shift to a next gear. So discrete is just that you do it, it's done, then you move on to the next um, action. So, you know, obviously most of us, when we're flicking a light switch, we're not thinking of, okay, I'm going to come up to the light switch first, I'm going to 
get near it, then I'm going to feel the knob, and then I'm going to adjust slightly and push it up, or pull it down. You know, we just we flick it. Um, mm -hmm. So whole practice is when you just, whatever the motor action is, you do it in one piece, and then you practice it like that. So if I was teaching someone how to flick a light switch, depending on whatever direction I'd want them to do, it would just be repetitively, instead of having like a five-step process of coming near the switch, feeling the wall, feeling for the switch, pressing it slightly, driving it all the way to the end, I would just say, flick it up, okay, flick it up, okay, flick it up. So they're practicing the whole skill in one whole part. Now, part practice is what I just mentioned on the opposite side. So let's say something like most of us might be familiar with, um, swinging a baseball bat. So typically speaking, most of us have been, if you've ever been instructed in swinging a baseball bat, the first thing is someone will say, okay, now hold the bat. Just feel what it feels like to hold the weight of a bat. Now that you know what it feels like, okay, you're going to bring both arms back to one side. So that's step two. Then you're going to do something with your legs. You may have a wide base. Some people might have a slightly more narrow base. So now that's step three. You've got to figure out where your base of support is going to be. Now step four, you're going to show someone they're going to start to turn their trunk and extend their arms to hit a ball. So typically when you're teaching someone how to swing, you know, you'd be teaching them in all these different steps. And that's part practice. So they're learning one part of a skill. They work on that, then you show them the next part, and then the next part, and then eventually they do the whole thing in a sequence. Right. So to sort of wrap up a, an idea around that, part training is when we break the skill down into its component parts, and then we establish a level of mastery of each part before we move on to the next part. Whereas whole practice, we're trying to master the whole thing at once. And, you know, there are arguments to be made for both of those things. That's you, right. you brought in, you know, baseball just as a very brief anecdote. I used to work with little leaguers and, and young pitchers, you know, like nine-year-old pitchers who are really starting to now pitch to their, to their friends and, and mm -hmm. um, opponents. There used to be a thing that, you know, when the parents were coaching little league, they would say to these kids, don't worry about how fast you're throwing it. Just mm -hmm. throw the ball over the plate. And here, just step and try to get the ball over the plate. And so they would do that. And then, of course, you know, the, the, the pitches are getting rocked because they're just, they're lollipops coming at kids. And, you know, even little kids can hit those. Mm -hmm. So then the kids realize they have to start throwing the ball harder. But now throwing it harder is a whole different skill. And so as they try to throw the ball harder, they're hitting kids in the head. Mm -hmm. So what we do with little leaguers is we just say, forget getting it over the plate. Just throw it as hard as you can right from the beginning. Will they hit kids? Sure, absolutely. But they're going to learn to throw the ball hard over the plate much faster, much more efficiently than if they go through all those little steps and then try to figure out how to throw it fast. So a little anecdote about what's the difference between whole versus part. And in this case, we could argue either way. As you know, I like to argue both ways anyway. Funny you mentioned that, PJ, because any of our really astute listeners out there might remember that last episode, we brought up this thing called Fitt's Law, which for all intents and purposes is the speed accuracy trade-off. Now, with everything we talk about on this podcast, there's contrasting views on it. Typically speaking, when I learned it, 
looking at studies of someone with their hand basically almost on like an air hockey board, a manipulandum, which we'll talk about later, just trying to move their hand to different targets. The thought process was you work on accuracy before you work on speed. However, you're showing that there's a, a, an opposing point of view that in a live baseball setting, that it makes a lot of sense when you say that, that you work on the speed first. Because what it makes me think of is some sports that there's, and other issues we've talked about further, there's just torque and inertia that are involved that are not the same when you do it very slow versus very rapidly. So if you practice bowling at a super slow rate, you're just not going to have the ability uh, to to produce the kind of forces you need to to really throw a bowling ball down the lane. You, at some point, you're going to need to practice bowling at the speed at which you need to bowl. So that makes sense to me that you would do the same thing with pitching, that you would first work us on the force production of getting the speed, and then you try to start to fine-tune it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you watch what kids do when you, when you tell a youngster, just get the ball over the plate, their mechanics aren't correct. They're not working the proper pitching mechanics and then just lobbing it in there. What they end up doing is just kind of tossing it with their arm and trying to get it to go over the plate. Well, that's not how you pitch. So if you say to them, throw it as hard as you can, now they have to start putting the right movements into the sequence mm -hmm. that's going to increase the velocity of the pitch. So the pitching motion actually starts to manifest itself much sooner. Getting the ball over the plate, you got to teach them how to pitch all over again. So this is the idea of Holbert's mm -hmm. part. And again, you know, we can make a case for either side. And there are reasons to make a case for either side. Um, but I would ask you another question, like, is this really a thing? You know, we're talking about it here. This is a very esoteric theoretical concept. I mean, is this a thing, Holbert's so, part? Yes. So let me say categorically, yes, this is a thing. And when you look into this world of what feels like esoteric motor learning literature, where they're looking at things like rolling a cigar or taking a rifle apart and putting it back together or you know, your arm, again, is on something almost like a friction, frictionless surface and you're just trying to move your hand to different targets. Yes, for sure, there are a lot of studies that are measuring what is the best way to teach the skill uh, depending on the outcome goal that you're trying to get. Now, PJ, the challenge that you and I have accepted here is how do we extract meaningful meaningfulness from these studies into what we can do in the gym? Because I hate to break it to you folks, there aren't a ton of studies that are looking at whole verse part on the Cybex knee extension. Um, you know, these original researchers, and by the way, this, some of this stuff, there is actually PJ, I'm sure, is called Thorndike when you went there. But when I went to TC, our offices were in Thorndike Hall. He's a motor learning mm -hmm. researcher that did some of the stuff. Back in like a good the 18, part of my life there. Yeah, like the 1890s. So they didn't That's have right. Cybex knee extensions back then. So nope. one of our challenges is to say, okay, we understand that if you are looking at how to roll a cigar, you know, part versus whole, we can see very recognizable outcomes depending on which, uh, which tack they took. But when it comes to doing a knee extension or when it comes to doing a bench press or even a lunge, there's less available literature in looking at specific studies that have looked at this, but what we're looking at 
is this body of work and understanding. So what are what are they saying here? What are some of the nuances we could pull out and actually apply to a fitness setting to help the people that listen to our podcast exercise more efficiently and reach their goals faster? Yeah, and that's a good question. And, you know, the, the other part before we dive into that, the other part of this being a thing, um, there's a couple of other elements that we need to consider when we're learning something. One of them is retention. So just because we learn to do something once doesn't mean we're going to be able to repeat it. Mm-hmm. So part of this literature that we're looking at and the things that we're going to tease out are what do we do to help people retain those skills? And so that's one. And then the second component of that is what we refer to as transfer. So when we learn a whole skill or parts of a skill, can we transfer those things that we learn to something else? And the broader, in the broader context, we refer to that in many cases as someone who's a natural athlete. We've all heard that term. A natural athlete, in my definition, is someone who can take skills developed in one area and transfer them to another area. So transfer is an interesting idea here. And one of the things we want to look at in this whole context of whole verse part is how well people can transfer skills from one context to another context or transfer parts of a skill to a whole skill. So those are things that I think will be important to discuss as we go forward. Yeah, and one final note on that. So um, in order to develop motor learning, a retention test is actually necessary. So at least when you look in the literature, so there's, and PJ, uh, let me know if you've, you've learned this in a different way, but when I went to school, we talked about something, the difference between motor performance and motor learning. And so motor performance um, the, the analogy I like to use is you're taking a class in high school or college and you hate the class and you haven't studied all semester and now it's the final exam and you need to pass. So the last three days of the semester, you cram, you, you study nonstop and you know you take the test and somehow you pass it. And then someone asks you a question about the class two months later and literally it's like you can't even remember anything about it. When you look back at your notebooks, you, if it wasn't your handwriting, you wouldn't believe you are even the person that took the class. So that's motor performance. It means that, and, you know, I'm talking about a test and that is more cognitive-based, but I think you get the analogy. Yeah, I think people so can make that jump to, to the discussion. Yeah, right? so, especially our listeners. So um, <laughs> it's, you practice something, you can perform it, but motor lear- learning infers that you've retained that skill over a period of time, and that time could be three days, the could be two weeks, it could be two months, but you have to demonstrate that you can perform that skill with a certain level of uh, accuracy and efficiency over a period of time. So that's really what motor learning is is um, suggesting. So it's whether you can do it once or whether you can retain it and do it again later. Right. So it's a retention question, really. Motor learning implies that there was some retention of the skill over time. Whereas motor performance suggests, well, you can do it, but you got to be able to do it repeatedly for it to become a learned right. skill. Yeah. And really important. Sense. Yeah. And it makes sense when you think about just the wiring of how, of how our brains work. When you do something and then you don't do it again for six months, 
it's debatable how well you're going to be able to retain that skill. So great points. Um, I think we've introduced this episode very nicely. I think we're ready to dive in. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to get into what the research is telling us. Hang on. All right, we're back, everybody. And as we said, we're going to dive into some of the research. And I found this, and it took a lot of searching on my part. And uh, boy, is this an oldie but goodie. This was a study done by Louis Peckstein at the University of Chicago in 1916. Wow. Like, we were at war in, <laughs> in Europe, in World War I. When this guy was in Chicago doing this research, so <laughs> just saying, there's an interesting historical context here. So there are a couple of reasons why I love this study. And I just, let me tee it up because it's fascinating on so many different levels. Basically, what he was doing was seeing how effectively someone could learn to maneuver through a maze, mm -hmm. right? So imagine, you know, we've all been through mazes of some type, you know, a cornfield maze or whatever. And you know that a maze is generally some type of square rectangular shape, and it's got a pathway, and it's got options for which way you turn. And then sometimes you continue down the path correctly, and then sometimes you end up at a dead end, and you have to retrace your steps, and you have to go back. And so learning to maneuver through a maze is learning what's the right choice, what's the wrong choice, when you have to go back, when you go back, where do you go? That's the whole maze thing. So this was a maze test. So this is really more about cognitive learning, not motor learning. So there is a motor component to it, and I'll explain mm -hmm. why. Um, but there's, there's this really interesting secondary question that he asked, which I thought was almost hysterical. He compared humans to rats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we set up a maze test that the maze was a tabletop maze. And he would put some food in the center. So there was a little box in the center of the maze that ultimately had to get to. And in the box, he put some food. So he'd stick the rat in and the rat would have to move, work its way to get to the food. For the humans they knew that they had to get to the middle. You didn't need to put food there. Although I think for some of us, maybe food yeah. would be a good enticement to do Always the work. Yeah. <laughs> I love food. Um, but what they did was they had a stylus. He had a little stylus, which is like a pen type of instrument. And the person had to move their arm through the maze, touching the stylus to the floor of the maze. But the top was covered with sort of a draped cloth so that mm -hmm. they couldn't actually see what was going on in there. So as the person would move through the parts of the maze, they would feel their way through and then they would learn it that way. Right. So there were two conditions that were set up. There was part learning and whole learning. The part learning, what he did was he subdivided the maze into four quadrants. And so the rats and the people had to learn each quadrant or master each quadrant one at a time. So learn the first one, master it. Go to the second one, master it, and so on and so forth. With the whole learning, they just had to try to get through the entire maze at once. Right? So that's basically the conditions. They had practice sessions. 
There was a period of time over which they were training in order to learn these skills. And then they tested them to see how long it took. Now, this goes back to one of the comments or points that you just made a moment ago. It depends on how we're looking at this and what we're trying to accomplish. In this case, this whole experiment was designed around the question of how long it would take someone to learn to maneuver through the maze. Mm -hmm. That was really the criterion measure was time. Mm -hmm. There were no other motor skills that were being tested. Mm -hmm. So it was like just how bumped, long it took to learn it. If you bumped against the wall or whatever, like they weren't measuring for accuracy as you're going through that, just time. Just time. So, you know, you would go through if you were, if you were the human, you had this stylus and you move and you go through it and then you hit an end and you say, oh, that's not right. I've got to go retrace my steps and then go in another direction. And then over time, you would figure out how to maneuver through it. Mm -hmm. So this was, if I look at each section as a part and then try to put it together, because look, once you learn a part, you learn the next part, you learn the next part and so on. Mm -hmm. Then you have to put the parts together, mm -hmm. right? In order to execute the whole, you have to put all the parts together. There's no guarantee that learning them individually is going to make it easy and seamless to connect them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's what this early research discovered was that you could learn the individual parts, but when you tried to put them together into a logical, efficient sequence, there was a problem there and it took time to put the parts together and they referred to that time as waste. So can you explain that a little further? Yeah, so I learned to do the first quadrant of the maze, mm -hmm. right? Then I learned to do the second quadrant of the maze. Then what I have to do is learn quadrants one and two together. Now, we could say, if I learn the first quadrant, I learn the second quadrant, then I'm just going to be able to easily go from the first through the second and finish that nice and easily. But what happens is, in some instances, when you try to put those parts together, there's sort of a fumbling of some sort that occurs. Mm -hmm. So there isn't this seamless transition from mm -hmm. one to the next. There's time that has to be taken in order to make those two parts work together effectively. And when you add more time, since this is a study that's really looking at time, when you add time in between the parts in order to connect the parts, they refer to that as waste. Yeah, so that's interesting, especially in the light of, you know, what I said in the intro of trying to look at some studies like this and say, all right, that's interesting, but how would I apply that to like a pull-up or something? Um, because a, a pull-up is obviously very different from a maze, but it's got parts to it. Yeah, so I agree. You know, this is, um, let's put a pin in this because we do want to come back to this and talk about some of the practical implications. And, you know, prior to this discussion, Gigi, you and I talked about some really interesting applications and we want to get to that. So we're going to put mm -hmm. a pin in that and we're going to come back to that later. Sounds good. All right, so that was interesting. And, you know, by the way, it kind of reinforces the notion of a lab rat. Um, one thing that I didn't well, comment we on debts of gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, we didn't comment on this, but I'd be really interested to see who learned the task faster, the rats or the humans. And <laughs> I'm putting my money on the rats, but <laughs> so, I definitely would just because I 
without knowing, you know, there's so much ego involved with a human being in terms of like any sort of competitive task that, um, you know, we've spoken before about the constrained action hypothesis. So any of your ego getting in the way of just doing the job, there's a rat who just wants to find food. Yeah, listen, the rat's just going after food. They don't care about anything else and they've got a pretty good nose and I think they're going to get there first. So... Um, all right, so that brings us to a different kind of a study, and this was done by McQuigan and McCaslin in 1955. So these are still old studies. We've jumped ahead now. Um, 1955. So what they were looking at was actually military personnel learning how to fire a rifle, not break a rifle down and put it back together, but just fire it. And they actually, interestingly, I mean, I think you just stand up there and fire, but they were able to identify seven unique parts of a firing process. So, Gigi, what were those things? What did they say? Okay, well, I'll just go in order here. So, number one, achieve effective posture for firing in multiple positions. So, that's step one. Mm -hmm. Step two, wrap or loop the rifle sling around the arm. Step three, move the sight adjustment. So a sight is this little piece of metal that's on top of the barrel of the gun that you look down. Number four, load and unload the weapon. Number five, align sights on target. Number six, control breathing. And number seven, gradually squeeze the trigger. So, you know, how hard is it to wrap a sling around your arm? I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, it, 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 I, I would think it would be relatively simple, but who knows, right? Um, control your breathing. Yeah. All right. We can practice that. So essentially what they did with this was they split up the subjects into two groups and one group mastered, they start in sequence. So the part group, they start with number one, achieve effective posture for firing multiple positions. So multiple positions could be kneeling, standing, or lying down. So you have those three positions. And number one is achieving that posture. So they would practice that task, that part, until they mastered it. Then they would do that and add wrapping the rifle sling around their arm. So they do one and two together. Then they do one, two, and three. So in other words, what they're not doing is they're not mastering each one individually and then starting to work with them. Once they had one mastered, they added the second one to the first one. And then they added the third to the first two and the mm -hmm. fourth to the first three and so on and so forth. Whereas the whole group just mastered the whole sequence as a single event. And there were two different conditions that they looked at. One was called slow fire, which meant slowly and sequentially doing all of these things and then firing it. And then rapid fire was just fire, 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 continuously without thinking about doing all of these things. And the thing they were measuring was target accuracy. All right, so now it was not necessarily how long did it take you to do this, but which one of them led to more accurate shots at the target. Mm -hmm. And so let me get into the results a little bit. There was no difference between the groups for continuous firing, rapid firing, 
um, the whole method was more effective for slow firing. Now, Gigi, this one kind of threw me off because with the slow firing, they're doing every single part in a slow sequence. And I would have thought that doing part learning would have led to better and improved accuracy when you're firing that way. I agree because I feel like if you were going to make an argument for doing the, the part practice that the more comfortable you are with each individual segment of it, your better ability to troubleshoot one specific area of it. So, for example, like if I taught you Stairway to Heaven on the guitar as one piece and then you played it for me and I was like, ah, you know, go back to the second verse and change that third third chord, you'd be like, what's the second verse? You know, I know this whole thing. So it's very surprising to me that that was the result. But, you know... Sometimes you say that's why you do the study. You know, that's a, it's a really interesting point. And I think that um, we're going to be able to pull that out in, in our, when we look at the next research study that we included in the episode. And once again, folks, these citations will be in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So people will be able to look them up if they want to. But yeah, absolutely. If, if you're, it's almost like when you ask someone to recite the alphabet and then you say, well, I want you to just recite the fifth couplet in the alphabet. Wait, you got to start from the beginning and get to where that is, or else you're never going to be able to jump right to the fifth couplet. So I would, I agree. I think that if I were to say to someone, you know, you're, you've done this whole thing, but I want you to go back and fix these two parts together. How do you do that unless you've done the parts individually? And, and again, that's what the next research study really gets at. But I guess what they're trying to say here is when you're doing something like a firing skill, probably the best way to do it is just to put it all together and just practice it as opposed to practicing each one of those components separately. And this gets back to something you open the segment with, Gigi. It really depends on what you're trying to do and what the definition of success is because that could change. Now, PJ, one interesting thing about the study I want to mention is that uh, there was a side note where um, all the subjects in the study took an aptitude test and they didn't give a, give a lot of information about what was on the aptitude test, but let's just say it was some sort of standard military aptitude test. So the researchers found that the whole method may be superior across the board for above average intelligence as measured by this aptitude test. So what they're saying is that if you scored above average on this aptitude test, that you know perhaps you should be learning at least this one task, if not all, for in whole as opposed to part. Now, you know, again, don't want to extrapolate too much, but what I think is interesting for us and our listeners is that like, look, we deal with people in a gym setting and we're giving them a lot of information and we've spoken at a decent length uh, to this point in our podcast series about not overwhelming people with too much information, but just shows you again, you have to like, what when you're taking this research, you have to modify for the individual. Some individuals will have a much better ability at retaining a lot of information than other people. And with everything, you've got to have some trial and error to see how it affects the individual standing in front of you. This is true. But a word to the wise, Gigi, and to our listeners, 
If you're thinking about breaking a skill down into parts, do not give your client an aptitude test before you do it because you're not going to have many clients. So <laughs> let's, let's avoid that one and yeah. just jump into the actual practical matter. So um, before we do that, though, I just want to finish up because we're going to talk about a more recent study, which is actually... Um, pretty interesting. And I think if I'm not mistaken, this one comes out of the Journal of Motor Behavior, which is really a wonderful journal. And this was done by Park and colleagues. And now we're going to sort of go back to another stylus task. So this is a, similar in a way to the maze task, but it's um, done in a more modern fashion. So instead of using a maze, what they actually used was a screen, a video screen, a monitor, and there were targets that came up on the monitor. And what the task was, the subjects were holding what we refer to as a manipulandum, and you've talked about this before, Gigi, and essentially it's an arm with a handle at the end, and the performer rests their arm on top of it, and their elbow is right at the axis of the manipulandum so that when they flex and extend their elbow, the manipulandum moves. And when they move the manipulandum, it shows up on the monitor that they're looking at. So if they extend their elbow, there's a cursor that goes up on the monitor. And when they flex their elbow, there's a cursor that goes down. Yeah. And what they did was they had them perform a task that was a basically a, rea a reaction task where a target appeared on the monitor and they had to move the manipulandum until the cursor was coincidental with the target so that it hit the target. Mm -hmm. And then a new target would come up and they would have to move to that one. Now, mm -hmm. here's the thing. The targets always appeared in the same position on the monitor. So after you've been through it once, you sort of knew what it was and now you're just reacting though. You can't move until you see the target appear on the monitor and then you would have to move to it. So it's a reaction task, but after you've gone through it, you're learning it. Mm -hmm. And so now you can start to anticipate mm -hmm. and they're looking at accuracy and timing, mm -hmm. right? And now the whole verse part thing is kind of interesting. They did yeah. 16 different targets so actually, um, the um, the part group just practiced A, and then that's all they did the first day. So they didn't actually. So A do is A is the first eight. First eight. So they would sequence A was the first eight targets. Yeah. Yes. The, the second day they actually did A B. So they actually practiced whole on the second day, like the other group right. that did whole on both days. Right. So, yeah. So what they found was that um, the retention tests were the same. Now, the transfer test was different. So what they did on the transfer test was you had to do, um, you had to then perform it in part. So you had to do part A and part B. And the group that practiced in whole did much worse than the group that practiced in part. Now, that makes sense because, again, like I just mentioned before, Stairway to Heaven, if I just played you this one long piece of music, and you had no idea that there was a verse, a chorus, a bridge. You just know it is one piece of music. And then I said, all right, now I'm going to test you. Play me the bridge. Like, how would you know? You just, you don't know. So, of course, that the, the group, it makes sense to us that the group that practiced in 
whole, even though the retention test was the same, their ability to transfer and portion out just a specific, what we call it here, I guess, a discrete sequence of the entire task was worse than the group that practiced it and at least saw it in two different phases. Yeah, and, and I think your mentioning Stairway to Heaven earlier was like a perfect segue into this study because that's exactly what it's looking at. And let's understand from a practical perspective, if I ask both groups to just do sequence A, that's not really a problem for the whole group because you start with sequence A. Now, sequence A is the first eight targets. They both did that. It's when you stop it, if, if all I'm asking the whole group to do is sequence A, then they just erase sequence B and it's not a problem. But when I ask them to start with sequence B, that's when they did not have the ability to transfer the whole skill to that second part. And so what Park and colleagues were saying here, when you're required to do a skill, when you may be asked to execute just the part instead of the whole thing together, having practiced the parts individually makes it easier to do that. When the whole skill just needs to be executed and there's less likelihood that one would have to do any of the parts independently, whole practice may work. Also, PJ, you know, one thing I found interesting about this study was that the part group ended up, when you look at the uh, discussion, the, the, the group that practiced in part ended up doing 25% less practice. So what that implies to me is that, you know, they got the same benefit with less work, which from my, when I put on my strength and conditioning trainer hat or if I put on my muscle activation technique specialist hat, if I can get the same benefit but expose someone to 25% less joint stress, that's a real valuable win for me. So, you know, something interesting to consider. Yeah, and just so that our listeners understand, you know, clearly what you were just mentioning, the authors of the study were suggesting that, you know, they're looking at um, how many repetitions it took the subjects to acquire and retain the skill. And so to your point in, in their discussion, the part group, the group that did sequence A and then sequence AB together as a second mm -hmm. part. Right. So they were able to do it in 25% fewer attempts. And right. yes, you know, that's a, it's a really good point because it's not necessarily always about how quickly do you learn it or do you retain it. Sometimes we have to look at what is the wear and tear we're imposing on people while we're trying to get them to some place, you know, and, and you work with professional athletes. I've worked with professional athletes. The last thing you want to do is wear them down in practice. Yeah, so if you, yep. if you don't have to. So there is this value that uh, the secondary value really that comes around as a result of having to do fewer repetitions overall. Uh, in order to get to where you want to go. So that's a really good point, Gigi. So, all right, so look, we, we've presented these three different research studies, and there's lots of them. Mm -hmm. And as I say, it dates back to the turn of the century, so mm -hmm. there are thousands of research studies here. What we wanted to do is just provide a sample to our listeners to say, here's some different thoughts on whole learning versus part learning. And we're focusing on learning the skill, retaining the skill, and then transferring. And so mm -hmm. what we learn from these three studies 
is that if we're trying to do things a little more quickly, if time is the key issue, then whole learning may be the best way to do it. Retention, both of them, for the most part, help us retain what we've learned. Mm -hmm. um, transfer, it seems that part learning may actually be a slightly better approach to it. And as you mentioned, in playing a portion of a musical piece, if you have to find the part, then having practiced things in parts may be actually easier when you're trying to execute only a part. Right. So that's kind of what we learn from these three studies. I think this gives us a good sense of what whole verse part learning is. And I think what we need to do next is talk about, all right, how do we put this into practice? And we'll do that right after this short break. Hello all, Gigi here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend, Jennifer Schwartz, on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. Okay, we're back. We've just reviewed some of the research and we understand now that we've got two options. We can train movements in parts or as a whole. And so the question is, if we're going to do one or the other, like what kind of movements are amenable to part versus whole learning? So, you know, what do we think? Like, what are the kinds of things that people should be looking at and saying, hmm, I can train that as a whole thing or I can train that in parts. What do you think? Well, that's a great question. So when I was in school, we went over some research that talks about any skill that has interdependent parts, meaning that what I'm doing now is totally reliant on what I just did. I have to do as a whole. So if I'm throwing a dart, I can't really break it up into all these different pieces. Once I start, I just have to let it go. Something like a clean and jerk, there's so many steps to performing the clean and jerk that before I do the last part of the jerk, I can actually stop, take a few seconds, and then do the jerk part. So there's independency between those steps, and that's something that the research would suggest lends itself better to part practice. So something interesting though, is if we look at like a bicep curl, to me, so uh, just for the record, I've taught that in, in, in whole and I've taught that in part. So um, I think there's not necessarily one right answer, but I think something like a bicep curl would be better taught as a whole. It's just one, you've got a, a target you're trying to move to, a general understanding of what you're trying to do, and then you let someone perform it. I'm curious when you talk about training a biceps curl as a part, like what part of the biceps curl would you train independently of the other parts? Well, yeah, I guess the way I would think about it is that I could, instead of just telling someone to do a bicep curl, like, okay, I just want you to bring this dumbbell up to this target. I could say, all right, so first I want you to grab this dumbbell and squeeze your muscle. Now I want you to generate tension from this muscle. Then I want you to move this joint up to here, to this target. Then I want you to hold it. Then I want you to let it come down slowly. So I'm like teasing it out into four different parts, kind of. 
Well, you know, that's interesting, and it brings up something that we'll talk about in a minute, which is something I refer to as subroutines. Um, but I think for our listeners' sake, you know, this is a really great example to raise because there's sort of a nuanced thing that we're discussing here. We can engage in a movement that has a sequence of actions or functions or however we want to express what those parts are. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're engaging in part practice. So just to make sure our listeners understand this, part practice means you're doing a part of that independently of everything else. Hmm. So if I'm taking a, if I'm in a, doing a biceps curl and I'm halfway up, let's say I wanted to stop and perform an isometric contraction. So I were to say to someone, you're going to lift it halfway, then you're going to stop and contract. Then you're going to lift it the rest of the way. Then you're going to contract isometrically again, and then you're going to repeat that going down. You basically have four parts to that or four subroutines to that, Mm -hmm. but you're still performing the whole thing. So part practice would be put your, you know, set your elbow at 90 degrees. I'm going to put the dumbbell in your hand. And now I just want you to practice your isometric contraction. Right. You know, that's, that's part practice. Yeah. I didn't consider that. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. So you're saying even though it's broken down into the subroutines, it's still whole practice because we're doing the whole movement. That's right. We're yeah. doing it in sequence. Right. And there may be discrete parts of that sequence. But if we're doing the whole thing in one movement, essentially, then that's whole practice. Yeah. So it, it's a really great example because I want to make sure our listeners are not of the mindset that, oh, if I do it in sequence, I'm doing part practice. No, part practice means... All I'm going to do is practice one element of those four things, and that's it. I'm not doing the rest of it. Right. Then the next time I come in to work out, maybe I'll add the second movement to the first one. Mm-hmm. And then I'll add the third one to the first two. So it takes me four days to do a biceps curl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Right, so which you could, you do. could do. So it brings up the question again. What kinds of movements are amenable to part practice and whole practice. I would say, and this is subjective, by mm-hmm. the way, so there may be some research out there. I'm not necessarily familiar with it. This is sort of my subjective approach to this. Mm-hmm. I would say things like simple movements, single joint movements, biceps curls kind of things, leg extensions even. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some creative things we can do with it. But to me, that's whole learning. We're going we're gonna to do that all at once. I think some simple, even compound movements, multi-joint movements, if the phases are relatively easy to accomplish, we don't have a lot of complexity, there are not a lot of different moving things going on, then I think we could probably do those as whole events. Mm-hmm. Right Now, I argued at the beginning of this episode that even a baseball pitch can be done as a whole. Mm-hmm. So everything can be done as a whole, and, and basically everything can be done as a part. Right. But the, the simple things, I think, in my mind, we should just do the whole thing and get it over with. Well, to, uh, to add on top of that, on, especially using the word simple, there's a term simplified in terms of skill acquisition. And simplified just means that you're doing the basic, some fancy people would call it a topology, but you're doing the basic form of the movement 
And your bandwidth of error is a little bit wider because you're not looking for perfection. You're not looking for a diver to do a perfect 10. You're just looking to see, okay, I'm showing that like, if you watch me dive, <laughs> this is exactly, I look like someone attempting to dive, but it's a, you know, it's, it's a mess. You mean when you're standing at the end of the board and not doing anything, you yeah, look like a diver. My and then you start moving around. and you don't look like a diver. <laughs> but my arms are coming around so that, reasonably someone would be like well i think he's trying to dive so but basically look we could and we'll do an episode later this season on a lunge and all the intricacies that people might actually be missing in a lunge but you could certainly make a case for teaching a lunge in part as there are parts of a lunge that are arguably harder to perform than other parts but i'm also i've and i've taught it both ways but my bias is to teach a simplified lunge which is just to tell someone okay See this target, step forward to this target. Let me just see how you do it. So I uh, simplified means that you're doing the basic movement. Your bandwidth is a little bit wider. And then over time, you start to fine tune things. Now, what I would also say in my experience is that we've spoken with Dr. Lori Quinn and some other people about tasks always come down to the performer, the task, and the environment. And in my experience working with clients for a long time, that part versus whole really the the person you're working with and their background really plays a significant part and it always does but in this particularly and so there's some people i work with that they're not professional dancers but they came up from like a dance background and in their background you know they're so accustomed to having every little nuance of a movement like teased apart and criticized and and if they don't get that sort of like joint by joint instruction, they, they actually feel a little bit anxious. And so for them, and I don't particularly like teaching things that way, but to try to meet them where they're at so I can reduce their anxiety, but still coach them in a way that I think will lead to the best outcomes, I might have to teach things more in part that I, that I would like to actually, but because I understand it not from a movement side, but on the cognitive side, when I'm learning something, especially any of this stuff that I've tried to study over the last however many years of motor learning and control, I need to know every single piece of it. Otherwise, I get a lot of anxiety. And like that's just the way I need to learn things cognitively on this level. And I've seen it in my work as a trainer. Physically, some people just seem to need to know about every step of the movement or else it actually interferes with their ability to acquire, to acquire the skill. So that's an interesting point. And, you know, meeting people where they are is, I think, the value statement that comes out of that. We may want to do things a certain way as a coach or a trainer, but we need to understand the way our clients want to do things, right? And this is what I've always called the platinum rule. We, we, we don't treat people the way we want to be treated. We treat them the way they want to be treated. Right. And so that's a really good point that you raise. I think what we need to do as professionals is to determine if we start with what they're comfortable with, mm -hmm. when do we transition them to a different phase or a different approach? Because we should. That's part of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. If they're always accustomed to learning things a certain way, it's in their best interest to try to learn something a different way so mm -hmm. that they can apply it in a different context or under different conditions. Mm -hmm. So 
there's no answer to that. Really, it's, you know, how well do you know this person and how can you come up with a strategy that pretty much moves people in different directions and gives them different experiences? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you, you mentioned something like a lunge or, and, and we will talk about that in a later episode. So I don't think we want to do a deep dive in it now. But yeah, there are some movements that you could do as a whole. But then you look and you see that, you know, something's not right here. There's something missing. There's a lack of control. There's a lack of strength or power. There's a lack of range of motion that's sort of limiting the person's ability to perform this thing as a whole. Mm -hmm. And you could continue to train it as a whole. Mm -hmm. Or what you might want to do is now break it out into some parts and work on things that will improve the execution of the parts that are not being done properly. Mm -hmm. And by the way... Now we're getting into, well, what is training all about? Because you don't necessarily have to just do that part by itself. You may need to supplement that activity with something else. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a lack of power that's being, uh, that's missing in that part when you're doing the movement, you may need to go and do some power training on the side, which is kind of basically working on a part. Cool. So let's work through this. So let's say uh, I'm in your clinic and I'm doing a lunge and you see when I'm in the phase of the lunge or my foot is hitting the ground and I'm accepting the ground reaction force. I'm just, for lack of a more scientific term, I'm really wobbly. I don't seem to have good control to the point where you think like, you know, probably not, but I may, you know, it's possible I may injure my knee a little bit if I don't if I'm not able to control myself better. So if you give me several attempts and different cues and different things, and I'm just not able to control it better. So what's your thought process from there? Well, so here's the first thing that I do. And and I mentioned this word a few minutes ago. And so let me repeat it. I like to break movements down into what I call subroutines. Mm -hmm. All right. Now you sort of indicated that with the biceps example. And Mm -hmm. actually you didn't sort of, you did. So let's just refresh that thought for a second. Mm -hmm. Let's say that I'm doing a biceps curl. And if I were to break it up into routines, I would say, well, the first one is I have to grip the the dumbbell. If it's Mm -hmm. a dumbbell curl, I have to grip it. So that's a routine, gripping the dumbbell. Mm -hmm. Setting my posture and -hmm. getting my arm in the starting position, that's a routine. Mm -hmm. Let's just go straight to elbow flexion to the top of Mm -hmm. the movement. So now the dumbbell's in front of my shoulder. That's a routine lowering the dumbbell that's a routine and then bringing it to an effective stop and stabilizing at the end of the movement that's a routine Mm -hmm. so i've taken this very simple movement and i've broken it down into several independent routines Mm -hmm. all right now if i want i could just work on one of those routines or i could say all right i'm looking at somebody doing this and they grip the dumbbell well that's not a problem And they even do the first flexion movement to the shoulder pretty well. But coming down, it seemed to be unstable. Mm -hmm. So now I have to analyze that and say, hmm, okay, what could be causing that? Is it a lack of eccentric strength? Is it a a lack of endurance? They're just getting fatigued. Maybe that occurs after the 10th repetition, not Mm -hmm. the second repetition. Mm -hmm. And when I see that, then I need to say, okay, if it's a lack of eccentric strength, then I'm going to do eccentric strength training with them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a lot of dumbbell lowering activities, mm-hmm. and I may do other types of eccentric activities with them to improve that. Mm-hmm. If it's a lack of endurance, 
then I'm going to have them do lighter weights and more repetitions and try to build up their endurance capacity so that they're able to do that. Mm-hmm. We can take any exercise at all. I just did it with an, you know, an elbow flexion exercise. Mm-hmm. Lunges can absolutely be broken down into routines, right? And, you know, if we're going to do that, there's the forward stepping routine so that it's sort of like a fall, right? When you're, mm-hmm. when you're stepping in a lunge, you're falling to the floor. So that's one. Landing, making contact and stabilizing is a routine. Lowering yourself to the bottom position is a routine. Stabilizing your posture at the bottom is a routine. Pushing down into the ground in order to return up and moving back to the starting position is a routine. And then stabilizing at the top is a routine. If I'm a trainer watching someone do that, what I need to ask myself is, which is the most critical part of that? Mm-hmm. Like if, if I'm trying to watch somebody do a lunge, I can watch the whole thing. And this is kind of a whole verse part conversation too, yeah. right? Yeah. So as an observer, I can observe the whole thing, try to glean whatever information I can out of it. Or I can break it down into these subroutines and figure, well, which one of those is most critical? Like the the starting position and stabilizing at the end of the movement when I get back to the top, they're important, but you know, I can do the lunge without doing that, right? So like which one is more important than the other? And by the way, there's no right answer here. This is again, subjective. We look at this stuff and say in our mind, what is the most important part? So if you were looking at somebody doing it, and you were to break it down into those routines, what would you say is like, what is the most critical one that you can't do this lunge without? Yeah, so PJ, I've actually told you this uh, when we had a conversation offline, but I've seen people go from a split. So just to be clear, a split squat is when you're in a lunge kind of shape, what we call a tandem stance with one leg in front of the other, but you're just going up and down. A lunge means there's a weight acceptance phase and a return phase. So you're stepping forward, your foot is off the ground for a moment, it's hitting the ground, then you're pushing into the ground and coming back. So I've yeah, seen in an people, anterior lunge, you're stepping yeah, forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could and do a lateral lunge. Sure, lateral and, lunge, yeah. backward lunge. Right. And, right. Um, and we'll talk about the merits of all of those in, when we break it down but i've seen people go from using like 50 i don't know if it was 50 or 40 pound dumbbells in each hand doing a split squat to trying to do a forward lunge and not being able to use anything other than body weight just because they're so unstable when their foot is actually hitting the ground for the ground acceptance part so what's happening there so there's there's some rapid knee flexion that's happening some rapid knee uh eccentric knee flexion And then someone has to quickly return, push, extend their knee, plantar flex their ankle so they can push back to the starting position. So if I am seeing that, what I might want to do is then say, okay, well, uh, you know, using muscle activation techniques, I might have some things at my disposal where I could test some of these muscles, but let's put that aside. I might just say, well, let me just look at their knee extension strength, both concentric and eccentric. Let me look at their hamstring strength, both concentric and eccentric, and let me look at their plantar flexor and dorsiflexor strength. And I could just do, quote unquote, isolated exercises for all of those components 
and then put them back in the lunge and see if there's any improvement there. To answer the question I posed, which one's more most critical, you've basically identified that there are two subroutines in there that are really essential. The first one is the eccentric deceleration and control of the body at the bottom of the movement. That's a very important subroutine. If you can't control that, you're going to fall. So, or you're going to be wobbling and you certainly can't move efficiently if you're wobbling. So that's number one. And number two, you've identified obviously the acceleration phase out of the bottom in order to return to the top. So you've noted that there are two critical subroutines in the lunge. I would agree with those. I think those are the two most critical subroutines. Then you are seeing that there may be an issue related to eccentric or concentric strength, and it could be in the hip, knee, or ankle, mm-hmm. essentially. And what I like about the approach that you took is, all right, let me test it. Let me test my thesis. Let me see if there's a weakness somewhere. You, you, what we often do, which is so troubling to me, is we have recipes and formulas that say, if you see this, it's this. Right. And I think that is an inappropriate leap. If you see something test it. If you think it's a lack of range of motion, test the range of motion. If you think it's a lack of strength, test the strength, right? And if in the case of a lunge, because it's a bilateral exercise or we can do it with either leg, we should be looking at both sides and saying, are there symmetrical issues here, right? Is one side more effective than the other? Because then if, they're, if they are, if one appears to be better than the other and you're testing strength, now you have a comparison that you can make. What is the difference in strength between these limbs at these joints? So testing is really important here because we need to confirm what we see, not just assume that what we see is correct. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I like about what we're talking about now is that I feel like we've been fairly critical during our podcast run of overcorrection and sort of, you know, some of the uh, companies out there that are selling those sort of cookie cutter programs. We won't mention any names here, but that, uh, you know, in our view, I think uh, overcorrects when there's not really a problem there that necessarily needs correction. But at the same time, look, that's what you get the pay the big bucks for. Like you, there are times where things need correction. And what I should have mentioned, by the way, is that um, when someone is, so if I see for this example, I was thinking of this person that was doing a split squat with two 40 pound dumbbells, then could not do a lunge. I did do some muscle testing and there wasn't really a strength deficit. What it was is that first of all, it was just a comfortability doing a lunge in that way because they just weren't accustomed to it. So after a while, when they got, it's a little bit scary actually, when you lunge and you really do what we call like an incline lunge, when it feels like you're falling forward, you know, it's a skill. And we'll, again, we'll talk about it in another episode, but it's, it's definitely a skill that, you know, you have to practice to acquire. And secondly, it was getting back to last season, it was much more about rate of tension development, that they just weren't accustomed to like rate of tension development in that way, just because they, in their exercise routines prior to work, you know, they always did sort of like a very bodybuilding, for lack of a better term, but just very slow kind of um, 
bodybuilding-esque type of approach and they they've never done any specific you know they maybe like played some recreational sports but they never did any specific sort of power training so just doing a knee extension but just working on playing with the velocity of both the concentric and eccentric in my experience seem to have really significant benefits so there are a couple of things here which are interesting is one you're talking about learning uh, if they're unaccustomed to doing that kind of a movement if they're used to doing things in a more slow and controlled fashion, now all of a sudden they have to learn how to move rapidly and with power. So here's an argument for part learning. What I can do is just have them do the depth portion of a lunge, or I can have them do depth jumps or depth hops, or I can have them hopping off of boxes and controlling and sticking the landing. Yeah. So that what I'm doing is really focusing on that part of the lunge. So there's this big learning component to it that is more cognitive as opposed to physical. Is there a physical part? Yes, they need to be able to execute it physically, but they also need to understand like what does this require? Mm-hmm. What do, what are the things that I have to control in order to be able to execute this? And if they haven't done it before, sure, it's going to require some new education and and relearning. So there's a great argument for taking something into a part not only practicing that part of the movement by itself but also getting these supplemental activities going that would really improve the function of that particular subroutine within the activity you mentioned um olympic lifts before and we uh talk about a snatch or a clean and jerk and um just to be really, really technically correct, we're accelerating the bar so it's moving up. And then what we do is we drop our body underneath it. So that's a very difficult skill to do, by the way. A lot of people think with Olympic lifting, you're just getting the bar up around the shoulders and then you're using your arms to push it up. And you're actually trying to accelerate the bar vertically. And as it's going up, your body's dropping down underneath it. Now, once you catch it, now you're using your legs to lift it. So we don't actually lift it with our arms, we lift it with our legs. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could break those things down into several subroutines, mm-hmm. right? There's the first pull, the second pull, the drop, the stand. So there are different things that we do in breaking these things down. And this is a, an activity that is absolutely amenable to part learning. Yeah. And Case in point, I actually a million years ago spent a really interesting week at the um, Olympic Training Center in Colorado, and I was taking a course in Olympic lifting, but we learned the snatch, the clean, the clean and jerk in several steps over courses of days, and we didn't get to do the jerk until like the fifth day, even though we learned part of the clean on the second day. So it was definitely taught, at least in 2003 or whenever I did this, in part. Yeah, and I think that's an activity that is definitely one that can be done in parts. I think for anything that's really complex, complex movement skills, we can always break them down into parts. And I would encourage our listeners to get accustomed to breaking down movements into subroutines, no matter how simple they are. Every single movement that we do has a subroutine, and I'll and I'll provide a sort of another abstract example. If I'm going to reach for a glass of water, we don't just reach and grab the glass. 
what we do is we reach in such a way that we get our hand in the general proximity of the glass. That's the first subroutine. We form our hand so that it will encompass the glass. That's a, a subroutine. Then we grasp it. That's a subroutine. Then we pull the glass up towards our mouth. That's a subroutine. And then we drink. So even something as simple as drinking a glass of water can be broken down into several subroutines. I would encourage our listeners to think of exercise that way. When I'm doing something, how many subroutines can I break this down into? And then which one of those seems to be the most critical one? Reaching for that glass, getting your hand to it is not that challenging. Grasping it, that's probably an important one. Being able to create the proper amount of tension in your hand without creating too much tension. And of course, if you can't get it to your mouth, that's a problem. Now, that's an oversimplification of a process, but that's the way we need to think about it. So, PJ, we probably have a wide range of our listening audience in terms of exercise experience. So what you just spoke about, breaking something down into subroutines, does it matter to you? So we've, we've mentioned this this learning process that we've called um, cognitive associated automated, basically like being from a total novice to an expert. Does the subroutine component matter to you in terms of where someone might be in their phase? Well, you know, once something is automated, then you're not needing to break it down anymore. But do you see any benefit to doing that in certain conditions, in certain cases? I would, I would look at that in the context of transferring that to something else, right? So when a skill is automated, it's automated. Now, if we're trying to take that automated function and include it in something else, and there's a piece missing there, like the translation from one to the other is not smooth, then it's possible that a part of the automated skill is not congruous with this mm -hmm. new thing that we're mm -hmm. doing. And then you may need to break it down into parts. So mm -hmm. as you build it, the building blocks of automated skills and start adding one to the other, there may be lags or lapses where things aren't sort of meshing effectively. Mm -hmm. And that's when we need to break things into parts again. Mm -hmm. But mostly what I like to do is take an approach that you suggested is when someone is in the cognitive phase and they're just trying to figure out what the heck it is they're doing, simplify it and do it as a whole. Mm -hmm. Then as they move into the associative phase where they're really looking at nuanced differences in how they execute a task, now's an opportunity to break it into parts. Mm -hmm. yeah. Once it's automated, it's a whole thing again. What I would do is I would do the whole thing and then I would start heaping other stuff on top of it and multitasking it in order to really increase the complexity of the skill and take a skill performer to another level. And that right. would be my approach. All right, Gigi. You know, I'm hoping that what we've been able to do is provide our listeners with just some thought starters. You know, how do we work with people when we're in the gym or in the training environment or coaching space? We have this opportunity to work things as wholes or as parts. At the end of the day, I'll ask you this, the, the question we love to finish these episodes with. What really matters here? 
Yeah, so PJ, I don't think I'm saying anything uh, shockingly new here. Other, you know, we've been saying this throughout the entire podcast. Is just, you've got to try it. So just because something's really simple like a bicep curl, for you or for a person you're working with, don't be afraid to break it up into several sequences like we went over. And just because something's like a lunge or even a snatch just and it's more complex and has a lot more moving parts, don't be afraid to at least initially try it as a whole and, you know, see how that works for the person or for yourself and you know you've got to just try these things play with them and see ultimately what helps someone acquire the skill that's a good point gg and for me it's helping us think a little bit more independently what really matters here is that we take an approach to what we're doing with people and not just apply formulas and recipes because that's what people do right what is the approach that we take and this is an approach that I've been using for decades. Um, and for me, it works really well is to be able to subdivide something and give ourselves an opportunity to look at something carefully. It's helping us to observe things more effectively so that we can start to rule out things that are unnecessary. To your point earlier, the efficiency of the subjects in the park research study, the fact that they were able to learn something with fewer repetitions, if we can hone in on what we think is limiting someone or preventing them from improving without having to do a lot of unnecessary stuff, then we're really delivering a better service that's better for our clients because one, they improve and two, there's less wear and tear. So I think if we have a system and a method and an approach of observation leading to effective decision-making, then I think we're really delivering a quality service. And that's what really matters to me. All right, so that's the end of this episode. We have some great things coming up with some really interesting guests. Uh, we'll be providing some information on that as we move along. Once again, the research that we've cited will be in our show notes for this episode, and we can't wait to pick it up with our listeners in the near future. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Fitness for Consumption. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we loved creating it for you. Now, we wanna hear from you. So drop us a comment at our Instagram account, at fitness for consumption and give us your take on what the hardest thing to do in sports is and why and we'll pick an entry at random and bring someone on the show to talk about it also if you're enjoying the podcast we would love for you to help us out by following us on our instagram page at fitness for consumption subscribing rating and reviewing our podcast on your preferred listening platform and sharing the love by inviting some friends to listen to fitness for consumption Thanks, everyone.